Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Uh, this is Jim Zobel. I'm here today with Dr. Michael S. Nyberg of the U.S. Army War College and the author of numerous books. Um, you teach about World War I and World War II here at the college. And today I wanted to talk uh, a lot about what is in your book, The Western Front, 1914-1916. In reference to the Schlieffen Plan, uh, this is Germany's plan to end the war very quickly, as once it begins, uh, with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, Austria wants to declare war on Serbia. But during these early days uh, of Austria getting to the march towards war, their final ultimatum to Serbia, a lot of these people in Europe think that this war is going to blow, or this crisis will blow over. But Germany's really looking at this as an opportunity. Because they see time shortening. Can you talk about that? I think the bigger problem is that Germany has a war plan that's been in place for several years that really dictates no matter what the crisis is, no matter where the crisis is, they're going to execute this this famous plan now known as the Schlieffen Plan. And that plan is intends to send their seven-eighths of their army to the west to take out France first. The problem is that the crisis they actually get is in the Balkans. It's actually not with France. So there's two ways you can interpret it. The Kaiser interprets it to say, well, this is the wrong plan for the wrong war. We should try to change the plan. The Army's argument is we really can't change the plan, and this is the plan that will win anyway because France is the most threatening, nearest, most industrial of our opponents. So the way I think about it is it's a, it's a plan that's designed to win a campaign. It's not a plan designed to win a specific war. So Germany goes to war with a war plan that is really based on several false assumptions. Now, are they worried? Because the the Russians are in a, a rebuilding phase, especially with their railroads. And then the, the French as well, going from the two to three year conscription. I mean, does this feed into Mulkey's mind? It does. It does. The Germans are worried that time is working against them, that if they're going to fight a war, 1914 is probably a better time to fight it than 1917. And the very fact that this crisis does not concern France or Britain gives Germany some reason to think that if they move quickly, they can win the war before the British and French are fully awake to it. So uh, this is part of the great shock of the First World War, is that it, it hits countries that don't think the crisis is about them. It's about the assassination of a relatively unknown noble in a part of the world most Western Europeans had no idea where it was or what it was. And then suddenly within a few days, few weeks' time, all of the great powers of Europe more or less are involved in the war. And that's part of the great intellectual shock of the First World War. And the Schlieffen Plan has something to do with that. And basically this plan turns this Balkan crisis into a complete the diplomatic situation that they have is not favorable. That is, they have enemies on either side, and they have the Royal Navy really controlling the sea lanes, and the only ally that the diplomats have given them is Austria-Hungary, which is fairly weak by European standards, or at least the Germans think that, uh, so that they feel that they have to conduct a series of gambles if they're going to get themselves out of this situation, and the Schlieffen Plan is the first of those big gambles. Hmm. Now, the Schlieffen Plan is is all based basically on trying to knock out France as soon as so you can turn around and face the Russians. 
but the timetable kind of gets upheld by the Belgians. Yeah, this is and one of the, the several assumptions that they get wrong. So the German assumption is, one, that Belgium will not put up a very hard resistance. They're wrong. Uh, they assume that their reservists and National Guard equivalent will be able to keep up the pace of the regulars. They're wrong. Uh, they assume Italy might declare war on France. They're wrong. Uh, they assume that the British probably won't come into the war, at least not their ground forces. They're wrong. So many of the assumptions they make going in are false uh, false assumptions. Uh, also, the assumption that France will kind of behave in the way they need them to behave is wrong. So it's a difficult thing that they're trying to accomplish. I don't agree with those historians who think this almost worked. Um, you can see it beginning to decline. You can see it get diminishing returns within the first couple of days. They're already behind schedule. This is part of the reason for the atrocities in Belgium, that mm. German commanders start pushing their men a little harder. We're behind schedule. You've got to move forward. Uh, so it, it's a it's a plan that has false assumptions built into it and really has the seeds of its own destruction built within it. And they read Albert wrong as well. The king of Belgium, yeah. right. So they, they thought the Belgians would either give Germany permission to pass through or really not put up much of a fight at all. Mm -hmm. And both of those turn out to be incorrect assumptions. Now, the the failure of the plan, uh, which is really the what throws it into what the whole war becomes, uh, the Germans can't push past Par Paris, you know, due to logistics and the speedy Russian mobilization. But can you discuss the 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 ultimate failure of it, uh, uh, the reasons why Mulkey being out of touch, Von Kluck's turn, and then the what I call the mysterious, but he's not so mysterious. But all of a sudden, this Lieutenant Colonel Hench yeah. is is in charge of of ending it. Can you just talk about that? A the little fundamental bit? problem is that two of the German field armies, the first and second, um, get separated from one another after this battle called the first, what we now call the First Battle of the Marne. And what you don't want in a First World War context is to have your armies being separated because it means the flanks are exposed. So this Lieutenant Colonel is sent from higher headquarters to talk to the commanders of these two armies and impress upon them the danger of this gap between their armies. And the solution that they come to is to retreat back to higher ground, which turns out to be a very critical decision for the next four years, and to begin to dig in. In other words, to establish a defensive line, to figure out what they're going to do now that it's obvious the Schlieffen plan isn't going to work. And the place that they retreat to is the heights behind the Ain River, which turn out to be part of the, the, the critical part of what becomes known as the Western Front. Hmm. Well, stagnate and go back and forth basically over that area. Correct, in part because the Germans had the luxury of picking their terrain. They were the ones retreating, so they could go back to high ground protected by a river valley. They could go back to places where they could easily supply their men. They had the choice of ground. Hmm. Now, Moltke is immediately gone. Yeah, he has almost. a nervous breakdown, actually, and he writes a very famous letter to his wife in which he essentially says, um, it's, a, it's a fantastic letter, in which he, he essentially says to her, we, we took this gamble, we started this war, and now we're going to have to pay the consequences. It's not, it's not going to work. And he was but, one of the main guys pushing for it. He's one of the main guys pushing for it. But again, the assumption is that Germany cannot fight a two-front war mm. for very long. Mm. So once he realizes that's exactly what they're going to get, he has a nervous breakdown. The Germans kind of delay the announcement that he's stepping down to hide that fact. Uh, and then they're stuck in the dilemma they're stuck in for the next four years. How do we fight a two-front war? How do we fight that knowing that all of our assumptions are based on the fact that time is against us? Right. And that leads to to this next question. With Mulkey going out, uh, General Falkenhayn comes in. Now, in your book, you describe him as a pretty ruthless He's a pretty character. ruthless guy. Yeah. But he has been inculcated through the past years that you can't win a two-front war. Yeah. Is this prevalent amongst the 
the minds of the German military. Most it of these is. guys, there's no way we can win this. It is. There's no way you can win a two-front war, especially if Great Britain controls the high seas, and especially if the United States is acting as a kind of banker and factory to the Allies. Everything works against you. So Falkenhayn is, um, to his credit, Falkenhayn is one of the people who says, look, we've got to cut a deal with one of the great powers. We can't do this. And in 1915, he says that the country we should be cutting the deal with is Russia. Our real enemies are Britain and France. we got to cut a deal with the Russians. And mm. of course, nobody listens to to him because by that point you're kind of already stuck in this total war, the sunk cost fallacy is already beginning to play in their heads. So it's not as easily done as it is said, but to his credit, Falkenhayn is the guy who says, look, we got to do one of two things, either cut a deal with the Russians or prosecute this war so unbelievably nastily that the British and French want to get out. So he introduces aerial bombardment over civilian targets, he introduces poison gas, he introduces uh, submarine warfare, at least urges it. Um, so he was aware that the, the longer this goes on, the worse this is going to be for us. Now, I know that your book really doesn't touch on, on this part, on the eastern part, but uh, in East Hindenburg and Ludendorff are in control. Do they believe that, that Germany can't win a two-front war? They do, they? but they come to a separate, a different conclusion. Uh, they see the eastern front as being proof that smaller German armies can beat bigger Russian armies because mm. the Germans are better, faster, smarter, racially superior, whatever you want to say, or whatever they said. Uh, so their argument is, look, let's win this thing in the East first, just knock the Russians out, then we'll turn around and we, then it is a one-front war against the French and, and the British. Um, so there is this debate between, they call them Easterners and Westerners, about which front, which side of the war the Germans ought to be focusing on. 1915, it's the East. 1917, it's the West. 1916, it's the West. 1917, it goes to the East. 19 18, it goes back to the West, uh, because there are strong arguments plus and against either side. It, it becomes, in my mind, a little bit like the old 80s movie, uh, War Games. Any reasonable conclusion is that this is not a war to fight. Right. You get out of this one way or the other. But again, that's easier said than done. Um, in the in the West, after the Schlieffen plan, plan fails, they start the race to the sea. And you start having all these um, campaigns around Ypres. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the fascinating uh, things that I don't think a lot of, you know, just people who know about World War One, but the Kindermord, the death the of death the innocents, yeah. right? The um, uh, and it's it's not. Can you talk about that? And it's, it's not really true, is it? No, it's a myth that begins to. I mean, the First World War is, is also, I think, in many ways, the great propaganda war because. Now you've got yourself stuck into a war. You've got yourself stuck into a situation that's very different from the one that you anticipated. You have to somehow convince your people to continue this fight. So propaganda becomes very, very critical. And Kindermord is, is this incident that's supposed to have happened of young German volunteers, high school seniors, in effect teenagers, um, who go to their desk, go, go attacking the French and British, uh, singing German patriotic songs. And so it becomes this kind of, it's this sunk cost fallacy. In other words, if those people were willing to give their lives how can we not continue the war in their honor? Hmm. And it becomes this thing that political scientists call sunk cost fallacy, uh, where you keep increasing the cost of a war to justify what you've already spent. Right. And that's the Kindermord is an example of that. Well, in that in that uh, campaign there around Ypres, October, November of 1914, and they are throwing a lot of these inexperienced troops. Why aren't they using the... The, the veterans. Either because pursuers. they're exhausted from the campaign that ah, they've just fought, right. um, or um, they just 
physically can't put them in the place that they want to put them. So this is the First World War. This is very much a railroad war. Um, control of many, many of the battles are fought over control of railway junctions. They're fought over control of trunk lines. Um, later in the war, when troops go over the top, uh, they're actually not trying to run to Berlin. They're trying to cut off railway lines. Right. They're trying to interdict railways. So part of it is just logistically what you can move. And mm. when you look at the sources, when you read, especially some of the French unit diaries, really what they're trying to do is just move men wherever they can move them along the railway lines and then figure out what to do with them once they get there. Get there. But the big logistical problem is railways. It's not... Um, it's not as it will, was in future wars, marching men to mm -hmm. the sound of the guns. You, you can't do that in the First World War. The theaters are they're just too big. Okay. So it all becomes railways. Well, now, while they're fighting up in the northern part of, of the line um, towards Ypres, uh, the French are really wanting to have this campaign in the Champagne, which mm -hmm. Joffre puts together. Mm -hmm. Masses artillery, but it's a complete failure and yeah. slaughter. Yeah. And then you have some of the few of these French who start coming up with this idea. Is it Grignotage? Grignotage, biting or nibbling. Yes, talk about that. Is yeah, it? so the, the problem becomes that the phrase, it's the English phrase, that you can break in, you can't break through. Um, so what that means is you can you can sometimes, through the methods that Joffre tried in Champagne in 1915, you can, you can sometimes create an opening. What you can't do is rush men and supplies through that opening faster than the defender can get there. So there are people who are coming to the conclusion that a breakthrough is simply not possible in the First World War. You're going to have to come up with something else. On the other hand, especially if you're French or British, the argument that you just let the Germans sit on French soil is not acceptable. And if you're German, again, if that clock is ticking in your head that a long war doesn't benefit you, there's still pressure to attack, but this kind of massive breakthrough attack people are giving up on. So the notion of grignotage is that you, you nibble, you bite, you, you pick parts of the western front, high ground, you pick a railway juncture, as I mentioned earlier, you pick a place where railways and canals come together, some vital place, and you take that. And then once you've got that, you go for the next piece of high ground. And if it doesn't work, you back off. So you're you're not you're not gambling on everything on the ability to break through the enemy's line. And obviously it argues for a much slower victory, it argues for a much slower kind of a war, uh but in places it works quite well. It just doesn't give you the spectacular dramatic victory that people had in their heads. Mm. Most commanders still go for the big breakthrough. It well, it's, 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 it's the well. easiest way to get the war over with, yeah. number one. Uh, and number two, I mean, what they really are hoping is if you create a big enough gap in the enemy's lines, then in effect you get those open flanks again. And then you can kind of turn an army one way or the other. And, you know, the Germans are able to do this in the east because of what the military calls the force-to-space ratio. Simply put, there's so much open ground that you can't cover everything. Mm -hmm. So in the east, the Germans are able to do this. They're able to get those open flanks, and they're able to do it. So... It's the tragic case of there being just enough success to convince people to try it again. And then it doesn't work in the West, again, because there's so many people, so many rail lines, the forces are so huge that it's difficult to exploit. Now getting on to Verdun. Um, Ypres uh, pretty much convinced Falkenhayn that the war couldn't be won. Yet he goes to this strategy of attrition and, yeah. and bleeding out, and he comes up with this idea of Verdun, this... A great significant place for the French, and we'll just bleed them white there. But yet, Crown Prince William Wilhelm uh, will take the army. Falkenhayn or Falkenhayn doesn't let the strategy be known. Yeah, what to... Falkenhayn is trying to do is something really radical and diabolical 
uh, an either evil or I don't know what word you want to use, but his goal is, as you said, to win a big battle, not by trying to break through, but by using this stalemate to kill as many people on the French side as he possibly can. And he's got this down to real mathematical precision. What he doesn't want to do is tell the crown prince, my goal is to chew up your armies. What he tells the crown prince is, I want you to have the honor of liberating Verdun. I want you to have the honor of marching through the gates. Um, so it's a, it's a nasty 10-month, uh, very unpleasant battle. Virtually every French and German World War II commander that we think of fought there. Uh, they all derive different definitions of what they think it means. Um, I've been there a dozen or more times. It is a creepy, weird, difficult place to be in. Um, and it's a different kind of a battle. It's a battle that is designed for attrition. It's designed to put the power of industry into a place where you're killing as many people as you possibly can. Um, and it, it gives Falkenhayn um, another way that he thinks he can win the war. Um, but, of course, as you noted, it, it just doesn't work. And then after Verdun comes the Somme. And now we've had two campaigns that are totally disastrous, just monstrous slaughter. And at the end of six, 1916, after both these battles, pretty much the German high command is gone. Yeah. Joffre is gone. And all of them um, are gone. The British government is out. I mean, 1916 just pretty much eradicates everything. Yeah, the fundamental question that everybody has to ask is, what are we doing this for? And again, that's some cost fallacy. How do we how do we make good the sacrifices of the men who died at the Somme in Verdun? And the answers to that question are not easy. If you're French, getting back Alsace and Lorraine just isn't going to do it. Nobody cares. Um, so if you're British, what exactly are you doing this for? If you're German, what are you doing it for? So uh, you know what what starts to happen as you said, people get replaced, new leadership comes in. Um, I you know the, I think this is part of the reason why some societies, the Austrians, the Russians, the Germans. Uh, will have revolutions within about another year to 18 months, uh, that they can't answer the question, what is it that we're doing this for? What is the sacrifice worth? And in my view, the big tragedy of the First World War is that even the peace conference can't do that. So that people walk away from the end of the war, even the victors, knowing full well that they haven't answered that fundamental question. So with this radical change, pretty much in leadership everywhere, um, in allies as well as in the central powers, what are people's views of 17? Well, I, th I think, you know, in some cases, I think Douglas Hay can be criticized for not adjusting his mindset. He was the British commander. The, the man that emerges as the chief French commander, Ferdinand Foch, I think, is the guy, he's in my mind the great genius of the end of the war. He's the guy who figured out fighting for fighting's sake is not the point. What is the political process? What is it politically that we're aiming for? What is it that we want? And how do we tailor military success to get that, our military effort to get that political success? And the answer he comes to is, is very French-centered, uh, but the answer is that Germany evacuates Belgium and Alsace-Lorraine, and Germany's power is reduced in Europe so it can't start another war. Now, as we know, that vision doesn't get held to in the 20s and 30s, but Foch, I think, deserves a lot of credit for saying, look, we just can't keep doing this until everybody is dead. There has to be a political end state that we're looking for. Uh, he identifies what that political end state is. He had gets the French government to agree, and he gets the armistice of 1918, November 11th, 1918, um, he gets that armistice to align with those political goals. Um, so there is a way out of this, but it's an intellectual way much more, I think, than it is a technical way. Thank you for listening. 
If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.